are going to start today's roundtable with a conversation with Juka Alanen, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Corporate Development at PagerDuty, which is a public company. Juka, welcome to the show. Thank you, Samana. Thank you for having me here and hosting this roundtable. I think it's wonderful how you're supporting entrepreneurs with one million by one million, and I'm glad to be sharing my experiences today with your audience. Fantastic. Juka, we're going to uh, tap into your expertise to learn more about exit strategy, which is, you know, I, I'm sure everybody at some point of their entrepreneurial journey actually has to think this through. We just sold the company um, in one million by one million. One of our companies just got acquired. So we're going to be writing um, about that shortly. And also, one of our companies just announced announced the $4 million Series A this week, so uh, Maureen can share that uh, announcement as well. So there's a lot going on right now, as you probably know, that uh, the biggest success story out of 1 million by 1 million Freshworks went public last week at a 10 billion plus valuation, and uh, that you know, took about 11 years to get to that milestone, but it's a major milestone. So we've had a lot of action uh, lately. So uh, Juka, I want to ask you first to kind of set some context about, I know you, you're a veteran in the corp dev world, and um, also a bit about pager duty so that I can put all that in context in my follow-on pursuit of the topic of exit strategy from the buy side. Sounds great. So um, as you said, I'm uh, currently SVP of strategy and corporate development at PageUnity. PageUnity is a uh, software as a service company. Uh, we provide what we call the operations cloud for modern enterprise that helps uh, companies um, run their operations in the digital always on world. Uh, my team and I lead corporate strategy, strategic planning, corporate development, and M&A Previously, I've had uh, similar leadership roles over the past 20 plus years in multiple VC-backed companies, as well as in large software companies such as Symantec, and before that at McKinsey, where I helped clients uh, with their growth strategies and, and M&A. And I've had uh, over the past 20 plus years experience from both sides of the table, buy side and sell side. On the buy side, I've been in tens of M&A deals ranging from less than $1 million to over $1 billion. And on the sales side, I've sold startups and VC-backed companies to both a strategic buyer and to a private equity buyer, um, which is a financial buyer. And the experience across both the buy side and the sell side gives me a, kind of a 360-degree view of M&A, as I believe it's really important to understand the motivations of both buyer and the seller and how do you align interests and make it successful for all stakeholders. If you're on the sell side, it's important to understand how buyers look at this, what they are going through. And on the other hand, if you're on the buy side, it's important to understand uh, the seller's journey. And also, I, think, I also think it's important to understand and have empathy for what the seller goes through as often the emotional aspects uh, are underappreciated, and, and I know um, how much it's very much, very much uh, 
an emotional decision for entrepreneurs and management teams, uh, especially in small private companies. So let's um, start with kind of a logic of how do you think about acquisitions, what to acquire and why? It really starts from the strategy. We think about what is our vision? What are our objectives? Where do we want to grow? What gaps do we have in our portfolio? Where do we want to expand? So it starts with the markets, the categories and the themes that are strategically important. We prioritize those and look at where does M&A fit? Where could M&A add value? We often also think about this from the perspective of buy, whether we build something organically uh, in R&D or whether, uh, 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 whether we build uh, something organically in R&D or whether we buy. So we consider whether, whether to organically fill uh, those gaps and expand or whether it's better to acquire. Once we've defined the focus areas for M&A, then it's really about identifying and focusing on the specific companies that could be targets. We map out the landscape, identify potential targets, evaluate and prioritize them for consideration, and then cultivate and build relationships with them to get to know them, and then further evaluate the mutual fit and interests between our companies. And I want to highlight that this is usually a proactive, systematic process driven by strategic direction and strategic needs. Usually it's not opportunistic where we just react to inbound interest from some company that is uh, for sale or from an investment banker. We do review those, we get a lot of those also, but most of the time it's not reactive to a brand new company that we didn't already know. Usually, we've already know usually we already know the company and have had some engagement with them. Now, I think it's also important to highlight different types of acquisitions. When you're um, considering selling your company, it's good to understand which uh, type of acquisition it would be from the buyer's perspective. So I'll briefly just highlight these four different types of, of acquisitions. One is what I would call a new product line or a new product skew which helps the buyer expand to a new market or new category and they can plan for significant revenue growth. The second type is uh, what I would call a technology and talent talking to an existing product line where the acquisition helps accelerate the roadmap and increase competitiveness, even if it may not be directly monetized as a new product. The third type is then uh, consolidation in an existing market to acquire customer base gain market share and drive efficiencies. And the last type, the fourth type is, is an acquihire where the technology doesn't get directly used, it may be thrown away and it primarily just adds valuable talent uh, for the acquirer. So when you're on the sell side, it's also uh, valuable for you to understand how is the buyer thinking about uh, how you fit into to these types of, uh, uh, into you know, what type you would fit in. Let me um, take some of the things you said and double-click down on, on a few of the points. First point I would like to explore is build versus buy. Um, can you step us through a little bit of the logic of how, did, how you determine the answer to whether a company should build or buy? Is there a you know, dollar amount uh, that drives that decision? Or is there a dollar logic that drives that decision? Is the time to market logic that drives that decision? What is the framework of that decision making? 
Yeah, there are multiple aspects uh, to it. One is, say, uh, considering time to market. Um, so big factor there is, is thinking about how, impo how important it is to get to the market quickly. How much time do we have? When would we like to have a presence in this market or a new product or a new technology or new capability? And then considering how much time would it take organically for us to develop those capabilities, launch and, and ramp up. And the time to market is not just product launch, but also how, how much time would it, would it take to gain revenue in that, uh, in that area. So it's both the launch as well as how, how quickly then you would, uh, uh, you would gain revenue. I think another uh, important factor is related to that is what would it look like from a revenue growth standpoint? So you can compare buyers build in terms of what type of revenue profile would you have in both scenario. Um, and then it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, um, the level of investment. So how, how, you know, what type of investment would it take um, uh, organically versus uh, through an acquisition? I think another important factor is also feasibility in terms of uh, sometimes uh, the area that we may be looking at may be very close to our existing capabilities and the visibility is higher and it's uh, easier to, to, uh, to do that by just extending what we're doing today. Whereas in some cases, it may be a different area where we don't have either the capabilities or the domain expertise um, and then acquisition may be more valuable from that perspective. So in, in a sense, almost like a feature versus product decision, right? A feature can be easily extended into and a product is takes a more judicious look at, requires a more judicious look at what can be done internally, how quickly, how with what investment. Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, I would think about it as a, as a uh, multi-part rubric, if you went, if you, uh, if you'd like in terms of thinking about is this a new product is it, is it a, just an extension uh to what we're doing today do we have the technology and the capabilities and skills or not do we have the time uh, needed to build um and then what would what would it look like from a revenue and financial perspective between uh between these options so you haven't mentioned anything about uh, valuation in uh, in this matrix of decision making what role does valuation play in whether an acquisition happens or not yeah so at the end of the day economics have to make sense for all the stakeholders for the deal to happen and usually this takes multiple rounds of negotiation to see negotiations to see if we can find common ground or not and making it work gets more difficult when the target has raised a lot of money from institutional investors, and especially if the target has already a high valuation from the last funding round. And currently, um, valuations and multiples on ARR and revenues are high from a historical perspective, especially with late stage companies that have done large fundraises, and it makes acquisitions really difficult at this time. Unless the company is struggling, investors are expecting high returns on their investment, which then raises the bar for acquisitions from a valuation perspective. And on the other hand, if the company is struggling, it may not be an attractive target then for strategic buyers. Right. And 
you know, at the end of the day, the higher the valuation, the higher the bar for conviction from the acquirer's perspective. So you need to have a very compelling must-have type of strategic rationale and compelling synergies that justify the valuation. And even then it may not get done. Now, I would add that from a founder, entrepreneur and management team perspective, you should not just look at the upfront valuation, which you would call the nominal valuation. For founders, there are at least two parts to consider for your total economics. Number one is that usually the buyer can issue significant additional equity, such as RSUs or stock options for retention purposes. And that can, that can add significantly to the overall economics for the founder. Uh, and point number two is that sometimes a portion of the deal or even all of the deal is paid with stock of the acquirer. And if you believe in the stock price appreciation potential, that can have significant long-term upside. And that's actually, when you consider these two points, that's where the economics may diverge between the founders and if you have institutional investors. As the founders get retention equity and participate in the long-term appreciation, whereas investors don't. So the bottom line is that the more money you raise, the higher valuation you take from investors, the higher the bar is for an acquisition to work out. But obviously, large funding rounds can also help you generate very large outcomes, but it definitely raises the bar for the deal to work out. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm a big believer in bootstrapping to exit. Startups with an interesting start, a strategic product that achieves product market fits with no funding or a small amount of capital. You know, there are companies that do capital efficient, uh, you know, fundraising strategies. Uh, can have very successful outcomes for all stakeholders. And I think what you're saying about the current environment, we're in a very frothy environment. The valuations are very high. Unicorns are being minted left, right, and center. Almost every other day, there are new unicorns coming. There are almost, I think, almost are over a thousand unicorns in the market at the moment. Now, with those kinds of uh, those kinds of valuations. Exits are very difficult to happen. Private exits are very difficult to happen. You better be doing something so hot that somebody is willing to pay, you know, billion dollar plus valuation to acquire you, and that those kinds of acquisitions don't happen that often. So, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think that if you have what it takes to go for that kind of a, you know, IPO exit. You can go raise lots of money, but if you think that you need an exit at some point into a strategic buyer, it's actually a better strategy to control your capital infusion. Would you like to comment on that, uh, Juka? Yeah, absolutely, and I'll give you a case example. We acquired Rondek last year for about $100 million plus additional equity retention. And mm -hmm. they had been very capital efficient. They had raised only a few million dollars. And compared to the amount of capital raised, they had achieved a lot, both in terms of ARR and customer adoption and product and technology. And it's partly because they use an open source model to cost efficiently fuel their customer adoption and go to market. They were smart about outsourcing and offshoring and overall running a scrappy lean organization. Yep. This capital efficiency and the lack of large 
fundraising made it easier to make the economics work for all the stakeholders and it really enabled attractive returns for the founders, for the management team, plus also their investors. If you can bootstrap, it gives you more control, flexibility and freedom in how to exit and when to exit. The more fundraising you have and the higher your post-money valuation, the more constraints you will need to deal with. I'd also note that while we're using the word exit, the uh, acquirer doesn't want you to think about the acquisition as an exit. Uh, from right. the buyer's perspective, usually the expectation is that it's you'll fun. stay on, highly motivated to continue scaling and accelerating, and the smart acquirers usually make uh, this attractive and give you attractive economics to stay on. So instead of an exit, I would think about it more as a new path to take things forward as part of a larger platform. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. The, all the stock that you're going to get in the acquiring company and the retention bonus or retention options, all of that RSUs, options, all of those are part of the acquisition deal. So your compensation is a factor of all of those and not just the stated exit price. Um, how do you access factory hires? Do you have a case study that we can discuss? Yeah, I'll talk about that. Um, I would note that, first off, we don't usually proactively look for acquit hires. We're open to considering mm -hmm. those. We've evaluated multiple times. I've done one acquit hire deal, but I would say it was more of an exception. Recall that we start from the strategy, where to go, how to expand our business, how to fill gaps in our portfolio, and how to move the needle. Acquit hires don't usually move the needle in terms of the business impact and the incremental right. value. So we don't prioritize those, but we can consider opportunistically. I would say that if you can bring not just talent, but also valuable technology that accelerates the buyer's roadmap and brings concrete product value to customers, that's much more valuable than just talent, and hence the valuations in a technology plus talent deal can be significantly higher than in a plain acquihire. I would say it's yeah. rare that the talent alone is valuable enough to justify an acquihire, especially given the hassle, the amount of work needed, and the complexity of doing an acquihire. Uh, you know, exceptions do happen. Um, if you've raised a lot of capital, it can make acquihires even more difficult to make work. If you bootstrapped or have a very small amount of capital raised, it's, uh, it gets a little bit easier. Again, exceptions happen, but usually the, the acquisition value and the economics for entrepreneurs aren't significant, especially upfront in a, in a, in a plain acquihire. And often these deals are structured such that you have to stay on for multiple years to realize the value. So um, you just, the previous example that we discussed was a $100 million acquisition that you made that had a few million dollars of fundraise. Um, what kind of valuation do you use for acquihires? It really um, depends on the nature of the acquihire, as it's very specific to the uh, strategic importance, uh, it's specific to the domain, the technology domain, uh, it's specific to the, the, you know, the level of the talent um, that you would be acquiring in, a, um, in an acquihire. Uh, if I give you an you know, example, if, if you're in a 
in an area, uh, um, let's say there's some highly specialized um, AI machine learning uh, talent that you can bring that fits exact, exactly uh, the buyer's needs and uh, would help them significantly accelerate their progress. It's it's very different situation than if it's uh, something that is uh, you know closer to you know to somebody hiring uh, uh, you know new engineering talents. Um, so it, you know there's there's a wide range between those. I would say that um, in the latter case, it's the economics tend to be more like you know what you would call a hiring uh, situation, hiring type of economics where the upfront value is not is not significant. Uh, in the first situation, then it can be in the uh, in the millions of dollars, um, and uh, we would often look at that on a per engineer basis. Uh, but it really mm-hmm. uh, it really specific to the domain and, and how critical it is and how well it fits uh, what we would be looking for. Now, um, when you're looking at a new product acquisition, um, let's say the company has decided that. You don't want to do a build, an internal build. You want to acquire some a product that's already in the market. How do you access valuation, and you know what are the economics of such deals? Can you double click down into that scenario a bit more? And if you have a, an example, it'd be great if you talk about it. Yeah, it um, it depends on the nature, the type of the. Um, M&A deal. As I mentioned, there are at least these four types with, you know, if it brings a new product, a new revenue stream that you can take to market, or if it's just technology and talent for an existing product line, or if it's consolidation, or if it's an, if it's an acquihire. When, um, when, we, when, when we looked at uh, Rundeg uh, as an example, a case example from last year, um, we looked at that given that they already had a product that had uh, meaningful customer adoption, and we had an opportunity to scale that business up uh, through our go-to-market and our broader platform. We especially looked at that from uh, from the annual recurring revenue, uh, ARR and revenue perspective, and looked at um, you know what type of what type of revenue uh, growth we would expect, what type of investments we would need to add. Uh, so we looked at both you know revenue multiples, ARR multiples. As well as when often um, we do things such as uh, create a uh, discounted cash flow type of model to look at the long term view of the business and look at what would be the net present value to, to you, uh, if you if you acquire and make it part of your business. Um, so it's uh, it's really a combination of of um, uh, of looking at uh, revenues, revenue growth, uh, investments uh, needed. Um, and then often also comparing it to other companies. It may be comparing it to other private companies. It may be comparing it to other acquisitions uh, to you know, look at how, how would this transaction compared to, you know, to what, is, what is being done in the marketplace. Now, if it's uh, more of a technology and talent tuck-in, then uh, we tend to look at more of the, you know, how much would it accelerate our roadmap? How much is that worth to us? What would this look like compared to uh, to an organic build? Uh, if we if we did if we did something uh, R and D, um, and if it's especially if it's uh, earlier stage technology and talent are actually higher, then we often also look at what would what would that mean on a per engineer or per FT basis, and look at how would that mm-hmm. compare to uh, to the market benchmarks. 
And any range on uh, like revenue multiples in the in each case? Yes, the revenue multiples have evolved uh, significantly over the past, uh, call it uh, uh, few years, as the market has mm-hmm. has has continued um, to uh, have what you could call profit valuations, as you said earlier. Uh, the valuations, I would say, that, uh, the reality is that the valuations ranges very highly, very large, uh, there's very wide uh, range of valuations. Whether you look at those on a uh, ARR or next 12 month revenue basis, there's wide range. Um, now, uh, it, it also, it, it, I'll give you, um, uh, given the spread of range, uh, I think it's important to look at some kind of factors that have, might help you dial in that range and where you might kind of uh, be. Obviously, you know, it's, it's helpful if you can compare yourself to other companies and look at, you know, how would you, you know, how would you compare to other deals that have been done recently in your area and look at, you know, would you be in the same ballpark, lower, uh, higher, or why? Uh, if you're a bigger company, you might get compared to public companies. Usually there's, there's been a uh, liquidity discount and you would be, given your smaller scale, you'd be trading lower than uh, what public companies would be uh, would be trading at, um, but sometimes in the private market recently in the in the very last uh, one to two years, sometimes in the private markets people have gotten even higher valuations than than what's what's been happening yeah. in the public markets. Um, but I think those are some of the things that 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 you can at least consider to dial in the range, and uh, and try to find comparable uh, examples uh, either in the public markets uh, and uh, and in the uh, you know, M&A comparables or private financing, VC funding comparables, and look at then how do you compare to those um, and kind of start kind of dialing in the range. I would say that, again, it depends very heavily on your growth rate, number one. So typically, the higher your growth rate, the higher the value uh, valuation, as well as then yeah. capital efficiency, how, how strong your business model is, as well as how strategic you would be for the acquirer. But really, valuations can be all over the place based on those factors. So we try to kind of dial it in case by case, as opposed to kind of just having a uh, uh, simple kind of rule of thumb. So um, in the industry, one of the um, best practices is to only hire products that can be sold through your existing channel. is that the principle that you follow? Are there exceptions to that principle? Would you buy a product company that doesn't completely align with your channel for which you're going to have to, you know, introduce a new kind of go-to-market strategy? Yeah, I think it's important to look at um, go-to-market, and I, I would say that we um, we don't look at something that would kind of just only squarely fit our existing buyer, our, our existing go-to-market, if it um, sometimes there's actually value in being able to expand to new buyers, new personas, um, and expand that market reach and coverage. And if I just use uh, what I mentioned, Rundek as an example, um, Rundek had a couple of uh, interesting attributes. One was that they, um, in addition to development teams and DevOps teams, they had uh, strong adoption in IT operations teams. And that was mm-hmm. uh, interesting for us uh, in terms of being able to serve that persona um, 
with a, 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 a very uh, attractive product offering. They also have um, uh, an open source model where you can uh, um, you know, use the open source community to get yeah. bottom-up adoption. And we, while we have a, a, a premium model, we haven't had an open source go-to-market model. But that was actually yeah. interesting uh, add-on to our go-to-market model so that we can harness the open source community and tap into that community and, uh, and work with that community and then help um, kind of progress open source adopters through the funnel from uh, free to paid users uh, of the product. So uh, I would say if, if there's something that actually adds value to the buyer in terms of of ways um, how they can expand their market coverage, it can actually be valuable. Obviously, uh, from a synergy standpoint, you need to look at um, you know how quickly you can you can you can add value to the target in terms of growing the revenues and accelerating the growth rate. So we will look at that um, specifically. But I would say definitely uh, uh, acquirers can be open to uh, especially. Uh, you know, the challenge. new buyers or, or new type of go-to-market approaches. Wonderful. Juka, I know you have to leave, so I should let you go. Uh, thank you for coming today. It was a wonderful uh, discussion, and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. We'll uh, talk again later. Absolutely. Thank you, Ramani. It was great speaking with you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.